You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Deirdre Fennell from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled Family, Favour, Faction, Female Presence in the Life of Lord Deputy Sir William Fitzwilliam. Writing from her jointure lands of Gaines Park in Essex to Burley in October 1571, Lady Anne Fitzwilliam describes her husband as the unwillingest man under the sun to take upon him the charge of the deputyship of Ireland. If he must serve the Queen as deputy, he should first be permitted to come home, to deal for himself in presence, as every man heretofore hath had free liberty and licence. Speaking thus, she encapsulates the title of my presentation to you today. As Fitzwilliam's wife, Lady Anne outlines the favour she wants her husband to achieve and receive, and she writes directly to one of the most influential people in the Tudor court, with whom her husband has been associated for many years. My research is concerned with the life of Sir William Fitzwilliam of Milton, Lord Deputy of Ireland, and in particular with his early life, up to the end of his first term as Lord Deputy in 1575, as this period of his life is relatively under-researched. Fitzwilliam served in the Tudor courts of Edward VI, Mary and Elizabeth. In the time of Edward VI, he received grants of land and also the office of Knight Marshal of the King's Bench. In the time of Mary, he was knighted and received offices and lands connected with Fotheringay. In the time of Elizabeth, he received offices in Ireland, namely Vice-Treasurer, Treasurer at Wars, Lord Justice and Lord Deputy. Of particular interest to me is the role that females played in his life. His mother was related to the first Earl of Bedford, Lord John Russell. His wife was a sister of Sir Henry Sidney, sometimes associated with the Leicester faction at court. His cousin, Mildred Cook, was the wife of Cecil. His sisters-in-law, Frances, Countess of Sussex, and Lady Lucy Harrington were both Henry Sidney's sisters, though Frances was married to the Earl of Sussex, who's sometimes seen as being a different faction from Leicester. So we can see from this that Fitzwilliam had conduits to many people at court, and we will see that he used all of them from time to time to advance his case. Fitzwilliam's mother, Anne Sapcote, was a daughter of Sir Richard Sapcote of Elton, Huntingtonshire, marrying Fitzwilliam's father in the 1520s. His mother was related to Anne Sapcote, the second wife of Lord John Russell, the first Earl of Bedford. Although Anne married Sir William's father in the 1520s, it was not until 1535 that an Act of Parliament was obtained to settle a jointure on her. This was a year after Sir William's grandfather had died. The jointure notes that Fitzwilliam's grandfather was a man of great possession of land and to the clear yearly value of 600 marks and above. However, despite treating his younger children very favourably in his will, he only left his eldest son, Fitzwilliam's father, a fixed term interest in his lands for a term of four score years with an entail to his grandson. In these circumstances, it was impossible for Fitzwilliam's father to provide a jointure for his own family and wife. Hence, the private act of parliament had to be obtained, 27 Henry VIII, C55. As explained in this act, Fitzwilliam's father was well-minded to advance his said wife to some reasonable and convenient living, 
and could not do so according to the terms of his father's will. The purpose of the act was to ensure that were Anne to survive and overlive her said husband, she would be in a position to bring up her said children according to their degree, and that therefore the said Anne shall from henceforth have and hold the said manors of Milton, Marham and Castor in the said county of Northamptonshire for the term of her life. Due to the extensive provisions Fitzwilliam's grandfather made for his younger children and his surviving third wife, it appears that at times, times did become difficult for Fitzwilliam's father and his mother. This can be seen from a sequence of transactions from 1535 to 1544, where they had to sell land and continually attempt to buy it back without success. The land in question here, Woodcroft, will in fact be bought back by Sir William Fitzwilliam himself, utilising his own wife's jointure, as we will see later. Fitzwilliam's father dies between 1544 and 1547. We know this because of a case that is taken in chancery against Anne, late the white wife of William Fitzwilliam of Milton, regarding a debt for silk in the mid-1540s. Fitzwilliam himself was married in 1543, just after the grandfather's third wife, Dame Jane, had died in 1542, and just before this case is taken, suggesting a possible reason for silk being purchased by his mother. Times do improve for the Fitzwilliams. Fitzwilliam obtained an introduction to the court of Edward VI, and at this court he was given the office of Knight Marshal of the King's Bench and also received lands. In 1555, after Fitzwilliam had been at the courts of Edward VI and Mary, we find that Lady Anne Fitzwilliam, widow of Milton and Sir William Fitzwilliam of Gaines Park, Essex, her heir apparent, provided an annuity of five marks out of the manor of Castor to Mary Bannister, her beloved servant. Thus we see that Fitzwilliam's mother is using the income out of her jointure to provide for her own retainer. Fitzwilliam's mother wrote to Cecil in connection with one of her younger sons, Brian. In 1559, anxious to seek her son's return home from exile in France, she solicits Cecil, noting, by the, friend, by the friendly and kind promises you made me in such times as when we dwelt country neighbours to plead her case to the Queen so that her son may be made some way able to live. And indeed, Brian returned to England on the 28th of March, 1559. Fitzwilliam's mother was also active in the management of her jointure, as we can see from a bond she entered into in 1561 with Robert Wingfield, agreeing to abide by the award of arbitrators chosen to settle controversies between them concerning rights of common. The Wingfields were, were neighbours of Fitzwilliams in Northampton, so very closely aligned. Fitzwilliam's mother, however, dies in 1571, and Fitzwilliam then enters into his entire estate for the first time since his father's death, circa 1544. Writing from Ireland on the 29th of September 1571, directly to the Privy Council from St. Sepulchre's in Dublin as Lord Justice, Fitzwilliam indicates that he has served Her Highness Elizabeth his 13 years and four months place in this land and seeks his own discharge of duty. His mother has recently died, and he notes his having to expend double housekeeping for his house in Northamptonshire and his household here in Ireland means he cannot give an eye to his own profit. And talk of his house leads us on to talk about his wife. In 1543, Sir William Fitzwilliam married Anne Sidney, the sister of Sir Henry Sidney, who also served with him in Ireland. Prior to their marriage, a jointure was arranged by the two fathers, Sir William Sidney and Sir William Fitzwilliam II. The act and the jointure is noted for the advancement of the said Anne in marriage with the said William Fitzwilliam Esquire. The jointure itself is recorded as a private act of Parliament, 34 and 35 Henry VIII, C38. As you'll see, it's actually 
signed here just by Henry VIII. I don't know if it's a dry stamp or the original signature, possibly knowing Henry is the dry stamp. Um, so, so, as we say, the jointure allows Anne and William to come into lands at various times, some on marriage, some on the death of Fitzwilliam's father or mother, and some after the death of his father. Some ten years later, in October 1553, Sir William Fitzwilliam and Anne sell a manor in Middells, Essex, for £520. This, however, is part of Lady Anne's jointure. Shortly afterwards, on the 23rd of November 1553, Sir William Fitzwilliam buys the half manor of Woodcroft for the sum of £300 already paid. This Woodcroft land had been lost by his father and mother, and Fitzwilliam, by using his wife's jointure, was now in a position to recover it. However, in 1554, Fitzwilliam entered into a covenant with Sir Harry Sidney, Knight, and James Harrington, Esquire, his two brothers-in-law, and agreed to suffer a recovery against himself. And the covenant states that the causes that move the said Sir William to ensure the premises in this way are that the said Lady Anne, at Sir William's request, hath departed with a great part of her jointure. So although Fitzwilliam had used his wife's jointure to buy lands in Northampton and consolidate them, it seems that he had to agree to reconstitute her jointure. And so on the 10th of May in 1555, a grant was made by William Fitzwilliam to Henry Sidney, James Harrington and John Hall of certain lands to hold to the use of himself, Fitzwilliam, and Anne, his wife, for the term of their lives. The grant, in effect, reconstituted Anne's jointure. We can see from this that Fitzwilliam was quite anxious to consolidate his homelands in Northamptonshire, but also that Lady Anne and her family were anxious to maintain her jointure. Moving on, it is clear from Fitzwilliam's correspondence whilst he's in Ireland, which he's, he's there from about 1558 to 1575, that his main object in life was to return to his lands in Northamptonshire. It's a theme that we meet again and again in letters from the 1560s and the early 1570s. In 1571, Fitzwilliam's wife was active also in seeking her husband's return to Northamptonshire. We know this from a letter that Fitzwilliam sent to Burley on the 8th of September 1571, where both he and Burley discussed his wife's petitioning on Fitzwilliam's behalf. He, Fitzwilliam, indicated, my wife of Ehan and Souter, which is what Burley had actually named her, wherein I most humbly to thank your Lord for her tolerance with her importunancies. But the vehement suitor continued with her petitioning. Writing to Burley from Gaines Park, Essex in October 1571, Lady Anne said that she knows that her husband is the unwillingness man under the sun to take upon him the charge of the deputyship of Ireland. If, however, he must serve the Queen as deputy, he at least should first be permitted to come home, only to deal for himself in presence, as every man heretofore hath had free liberty and licence. Fitzwilliam's wife also petitioned the Queen directly regarding Fitzwilliam's debt in December 1571 in her petition of Anne, Lady Fitzwilliam, to Queen Elizabeth, where she emphasised the debasement of the coin and the prices in Ireland as being the root causes of Fitzwilliam now being in debt. She writes, At his first entry into service there as Your Majesty's Treasurer, the coin was so base as 50 shillings current money of Ireland was worth but 20 shillings current money of England, which brought all things in that realm of Ireland to extreme dearth. However, despite their pleadings, Fitzwilliam was appointed Lord Deputy on the 11th of December 1571 and remained in Ireland. But something was done about his death. <coughs> debt. On the 5th of August 1572, Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam wrote to Queen Elizabeth, It may please your most excellent majesty, I have received knowledge from my poor wife of your majesty's most gracious goodness towards me, in having that consideration to my decay as, to as towards some relief thereof to remit me a thousand pounds off my debts and to grant the stalling of the rest. 
Lady Fitzwilliam continued to petition people of influence regarding her husband, and they wrote back. We see from a letter written by Thomas Smith, who established the Ards Peninsula Plantation. He wrote from, from Windsor to Lady Fitzwilliam in October 1572. He wrote, which assures her ladyship of his utmost readiness to further the affairs of her husband. It is indeed, he notes, too much trouble and inconvenience that those three charges should be on one man's neck, namely to be deputy, treasurer, and victualler. But your ladyship knoweth how loath her majesty is to resolve. Nevertheless, now my lords are come, I will even this day, if it be possible, move it again to her highness and will not rest while some resolution be given. But if Lady Anne Fitzwilliam wrote about her husband to people of influence, powerful people also had opinions on her. We've already seen that Burley called her a vehement suitor. In April 1575, Walter Devereux, Earl of Essex, wrote to Burley and the Earl of Sussex, where he discussed Fitzwilliam's decision to discharge Essex. Fitzwilliam, Essex noted, resolved to do it without any advice but my ladies, who I assure you, as I am most credibly informed, kept Her Majesty's letter three days and quoted every line of it, and in the end gave a final judgment, that I and all my soldiers should be cashed. And it was no sooner done, but here was such a general joy conceived by some about him, as though some great victory had been obtained. Whatever Burley made of this letter, Burley's wife was Mildred Cook, Fitzwilliam's first cousin, and it's to, ha to her we will now turn. Gemma Allen, who wrote on the Cook sisters, noted that Mildred was the wife of the Queen's principal secretary and an influential member of the political networks of Elizabethan England. Like Fitzwilliam, Mildred was born in 1526. She was the eldest child of Sir Anthony Cook, tutor to Edward VI, and his wife Anne Fitzwilliam, an aunt of Fitzwilliam, the Lord Deputy. Mildred was very well educated, speaking, writing, and translating Greek, Latin, French, and English, and on her death, she left her library to Cambridge. However, prior to and during the Battle of Leith and the Treaty of Edinburgh, the Lords of the Confederation in Scotland, including Maitland and the Earl of Arran, wrote directly to Mildred with their views. Fitzwilliam also wrote to Mildred whilst he was in Ireland about personal affairs, his, his enemies, and Cecil's support of him. Allen indicates that just five of Mildred Cook's letters have survived, but there are two letters that remain where Mildred wrote directly to Fitzwilliam, the first of which is not amongst the five listed by Allen. In September 1562, Mildred wrote to Fitzwilliam about a hawk that was sent to her. She wrote, If you receive this hawk which Mr Wingfield sendeth, I would beg him for my brother Richard Cook, if I thought it were a hawk fit for his ground, but if he be not fit for him, you may bestow him where please you. Wingfield had been involved in an unfortunate reverse for Crown forces in 1561, and the Queen had sought his removal. Wingfield had written to Mildred, and Mildred was letting Fitzwilliam know that this had occurred. One of the five letters mentioned by Allen has an interesting history. In 1752, George Ballard noted in an appendix to his Memoirs of British Ladies that Mildred wrote to Fitzwilliam in October 1573. Ballard notes, the following letter from Lady Burley to Sir William Fitzwilliams, Lord Deputy of Ireland, October 26, 1573, was very obligingly transcribed from the original and communicated to me by Mr. Cart. In this letter, Mildred assured Fitzwilliam of Cecil's support. My Lord, I know, both hath and doth, continue your defender here, whatsoever he writeth to you there, to the uttermost of his power. And only he alone, I must needs say, is driven to answer in your behalf. Mildred advised Fitzwilliam to take care of his position, not to act too hastily, but she also noted that it is not you that suffer alone. This grief is common to all those that deal in princes' affairs. 
In the letter, Mildred stated, Keep close to your friend's letters, for craft and malice never reigned more. Some about you perhaps may be corrupted to show them, though for my part I care not, not that I know anything before God, but because I now I know the like practice used with some here. Perhaps Mildred would not have minded if her letter had been read in Ireland, because it showed that her cousin, the Lord Deputy, still had Burley's support. As an aside, Fitzwilliam also communicated with other women, and I'll now just briefly sketch a few examples. Whilst in Ireland, Fitzwilliam wrote to Lady Lucy Harrington, his sister-in-law and sister to Henry Sidney, who was in London. From December 1567, whilst in Ireland, Fitzwilliam was negotiating a marriage contract between his son, William, and Winifred Mildmay, the daughter of Sir Walter Mildmay, who would become the Lord Chancellor. But on the 5th of April, 1569, again in a letter written from Ireland, from Fitzwilliam to his son, it is evident that the marriage contract has faltered. Fitzwilliam has heard of Sir Walter Mildmay's doings and knows him to have had a liking of William Fitzwilliam, his son. He fears, therefore, that the banishing of his son from Sir Walter's house and his daughter's company must arise from some very lewd prank by him committed. Fitzwilliam wrote on the same day to Lady Harrington regarding his son's marriage contract. Fitzwilliam went so far as to ask her to deal for his son to Sir Walter Mildmay himself, whom Fitzwilliam indicates, being so grave and wise as he he is, would not so strictly have forbidden my son his daughter's company and his house unless my son had greatly deserved it. Fitzwilliam at the same time also wrote to Cecil that the matter of his accounts may be examined into by the Lord Chancellor Mildmay and other commissioners. Fortunately for Fitzwilliam, Lady Harrington appears to have been of assistance, as the marriage went ahead, as we can see from a letter from Mildmay written to Cecil on the 8th of September 1569, in which he states, We would be glad to have you here on Monday next, at which day, God willing, the marriage shall be ended between my daughter and young Mr Fitzwilliam. Fitzwilliam also wrote to Francis, Countess of Sussex, his other sister-in-law, married to the Earl of Sussex. Writing on the 18th of September 1568 regarding again the settlement of his account, he states, I am this day, God I thank him, entered into my account with the auditor. It is the best day's wish I made and more hath quieted me than anything I had done to me in Ireland these five years past. And if my fortune, he said, be to go to prison, remember me, good madam, and be a mean to my lord of Sussex to speak for me. Fortunately for Fitzwilliam, his accounts were settled without the need for him to go to prison. Thomas Jennison, auditor, wrote to Cecil on the 29th of June, 1569, stating that he has finished the treasurer's accounts, which he had to extract from 21 books of payments. In a modest way, Jennison further indicated he has brought it from disorder to as good order as any treasurer's account ever exhibited. And so, on the 6th of October, 1572, a patent was issued to discharge some of the debt and stall the remainder, hence finalising Fitzwilliam's debt. From this, we can see the work of his wife and his sisters-in-law had not been in vain. Fitzwilliam also wrote generally to other women during his time in Ireland. Writing to Cecil on the 19th of June, 1562, in connection with Joan, Countess of Desmond, who was at this time on her third marriage to Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Desmond, Fitzwilliam noted that Joan was skilled in preserving the peace between her husband and her very powerful son from a previous marriage, the current Earl of Ormond. He wrote that she can fully wisely in such things deal that tended to her her liking of furtherance of my lord her son's benefit, yet not without so good parts as becometh an honourable wife to bear. In a letter to Cecil, 
in June 1565, in which Fitzwilliam has much to say about his views of Sir Nicholas Arnold, the current Lord Justice, the State of Ireland, and President Sidney's possible return to Ireland, Fitzwilliam also mentioned a cursed companion, Mistress Isham. So, in conclusion, in this talk, I've discussed the female presence in the life of Sir William Fitzwilliam, and in particular I've looked at his mother, his wife, his first cousin, and his sisters-in-law. All of these ladies played a part in Fitzwilliam's life. His mother, Lady Anne Fitzwilliam, had to have a jointure established for her by Act of Parliament some 12 years after her marriage because of the peculiarity of Fitzwilliam's grandfather's will. She appears to have had financial difficulties in the 1540s. Fitzwilliam entered court, and as his court career became more established, her difficulties were alleviated. Fitzwilliam's wife had a jointure established for her by Act of Parliament prior to her marriage. She and her Sydney family were rigorous in maintaining it. She was also quite active in writing to people of influence concerning Fitzwilliam's career. Fitzwilliam's cousin, Mildred Cook, was an important conduit to Cecil. His sister-in-law, Frances, Countess of Sussex, was a conduit to the Earl of Sussex. And his sister-in-law, Lucy Harrington, was a conduit to Chancellor Mildmay. Female presence in the life of Fitzwilliam is very under-researched, and I hope that I've made some small contribution in this presentation towards exploring some of that topic. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.